Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is in the name of Jesus that we gather here today as your sons and daughters because of your great love for us. When we come to know you as our Savior, you call us friend because you are a friend of sinners. And although you see us as righteous because you have clothed us with the righteous robes of your Son, Jesus Christ, we still struggle. We still sometimes even doubt. But Lord, we don't ever have to doubt the depth of your love for us because all we have to do is look at the cross of Jesus Christ. That when we understand that you came here knowing where the end of the road was, knowing what it was going to take to redeem us back to you, the depth of your love for us is unquestionable. And Lord, because you rose again, the victory we have in you is without a doubt. So Lord, as we continue to worship you now and opening up your word and looking at the life of your son as he walked among us, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things from your truth. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open to the word and that your word would do a work in our lives to the end that we would walk out of here different than we walked in, that we would look more like Jesus Christ as we share him with a world that needs to hear the good news of a God in heaven who loves us desperately. Lord, it is in the power of your spirit who brings us to life, and it is in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. Please have a seat. Good morning to you. Um, I have uh, a, a, one quick announcement, and that is today I'm going to be really annoyed by my glasses because these are readers, and my glasses are, in the, are getting redone because I um, couldn't see anymore. So now I can't see very many of you in the back, but that's okay because, you know, you're just distracting anyway. Um, but I'll be doing a lot of this stuff because I can't read the words in my Bible either. So that's a good thing, right? Not really. Um, we are in week four of this series that, as Dan said, that's called Sent to Make Disciples. And we're going through the Gospel of John. We're four weeks into it. If you've missed a week or two and you want to get caught up, because I'm not a big fan of reviewing. I don't spend a lot of time going over what we talked about last week. In fact, I usually spend no time talking about it. All of our messages are on our website. You can go there and you can download them, listen to them. Um, and that's the best way to get caught up week to week because there is sort of an ongoing theme here. Speaking of themes, there's these, that John was a big fan of repetition. You know, there's, a, there's a saying that says that repetition is the greatest aid to learning. And I think the Apostle John really believed that. Because even in, in the letters that he writes towards the end of the Bible, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, or in his gospel, he repeats over and over some central themes. And, and many of them are in the passage we're going to look at today in John chapter 2. Being sent is a theme over and over in the God. John the Baptist was sent. Jesus was sent. As Jesus was sent, he's sending us. That's an example of a theme. Um, another example is the hour. The hour that is, has not yet come, we're going to look at today. There's another example of a theme. And so we're going to see these things play out multiple times. Miracles that happen throughout the gospel. We're going to see what was the point of those miracles, not just today, but through other messages throughout the series, because he sort of repeats himself over and over. So today, the message is entitled, Sent to Show God Strong. Sent to Show God Strong. And we're going to look at it two different ways. One, Jesus was sent to show God strong. And two, we are sent to show God strong in our lives. But here's the question for the day. 
Did you know that in Christ you are a walking sign? Did you know that in Christ you are a walking sign? So I want you to think about those guys and I, the guys that are that you'll see um, on the streets, on the street corners, and the streets, and they're holding like the real estate signs and stuff, and they're trying to get your attention and get you to go inside and, and check out what the um, what the business is selling. Um, that is an example of what we should be. As believers in Christ, we should be those walking billboards. When people see us go by, they should go, there's something different about that guy that's attracting attention. And that attention should be pointing people to the one, to the, like they're, they're trying to attract, get your attention to point you to what they're selling. Right? We're called by God to attract attention to point people to Him, to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see that today. In chapter 1, we looked at over the first couple of weeks, in chapter 1, really sets up the table for how Judaism was a big failure, basically. So chapter 1, John comes in, he, starts, he talks about um, like how in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and that Jesus is the Word in flesh, John 1, 14. And then he goes on, and in the next week we talked about how John the Baptist says, you know, um, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so there's this picture of Judaism was a failure. The old covenant was just, and, 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 John, or, and Paul tells us this. He tells us in Galatians, the Apostle Paul tells us that the Old Testament is a tutor, is our teacher to lead us to the cross of Christ, to show us our need for Jesus. So what John is doing now is he's saying, okay, in John chapter 1, Jesus is God. He came to take care of the sins of the world. And now in chapter 2, he's going to sort of launch into this, and now I'm going to prove it to you. Now I'm going to show you, starting in chapter 2, how Jesus demonstrated the truth of chapter 1. That the old covenant was was incomplete and imperfect and that the new covenant in Christ has been made perfect in Jesus when he came. And that's where, that's where John is going to open it up as we go here. So he's going to show us how, God, how, how, he, how, God, how Jesus shows God strong as he turns the old into new. So turn to John, the Gospel of John. It's the fourth gospel in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to want one today because we're going to be in Scripture a lot, like we are every Sunday, but specifically today, maybe even more so. So in John chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1 and look at how Jesus shows himself strong, shows God strong in turning the old into new. It's funny how the gospel, how, how, the cha- how chapter 2 starts with, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. It's interesting that he starts with on the third day. What John is doing is connecting. He's making the point I just referenced a minute ago. He's saying chapter one happened. This is what this is the, the kind of the introduction to Jesus on the scene. He gets baptized. The Holy Spirit descends upon him, and then he says on the third day. Now there's a lot of reference there too about on the third day, obviously. But he's but what John is doing is he's connecting what's going to happen in chapter two back to chapter one. And saying, now let me show you how Jesus started to put into motion his ministry here on earth. It says, on the third day there was a wedding feast in in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now Cana in Galilee is ten miles from Nazareth. And when I was in Jerusalem, or when I was in, excuse me, when I was in Israel last May, and we hiked it, we walked about 100 miles, the first 10 of them were from Nazareth, where the bus dropped us off, 
and we stayed the night there, and then we hiked to Cana, and we spent a night in a little kibbutz there in Cana. And it's, it was a 10-mile walk, and it's not an easy walk. So, there, so just to give you some geography, um, there's, there was 10 miles. But, but he's there, he, he and his mom went there for a wedding feast. And, and I, as I thought about that, I thought, you know, it's interesting because Jesus, we, we can kind of picture Jesus as being this very stoic, very solemn, um, you know, he was, um, the, the way Isaiah quotes him, the way Isaiah describes part of his ministry here was he was a man of sorrows, but Jesus wasn't always walking around like Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh, right? I mean, he was at a wedding. He was at a feast. It was a celebration. He was jovial. He was joyful. He was, you know, he, is in, he and his disciples are having a good time. There is nothing, there's nothing about being a Christian that should seem um, sad, we should be the most joy-filled people in, on earth, even in the midst of our trials, because we know how the story ends. We win, because he won. So he's, he knows where he's heading, but in the meantime, it's not like he's going to stop and go, well, I can't have any fun until I get to the cross. He goes to a wedding. I think that's kind of interesting that they invited him to the wedding. One of the questions, just as an aside, I was thinking about, is there room in my marriage for Jesus? Like this wedding ceremony, they invite he and his disciples there. Is there a place in your wedding ceremony, a place in your ongoing wedding ceremony, if you're married, is there a place for Christ there? But here's what else is interesting about the, about the place. When we, so we got to Cana, and they have built this giant church, on this, which is pretty much, well, it's true everywhere. Everywhere that there was a holy site, that they think that something happened, whether it was the 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 turning the water to wine that we're going to see here in a minute, or his death. His, some, over the years, some different groups, the Catholics, the Lutherans, the, um, the um, Orthodox Greeks, they've built these giant churches over the sites that they think these things happen. More often than not, my guess is it's, not even, it's probably not right where those incidents occurred. Here's what was interesting to me about Cana when I was there. Because, it is, because the, that big church is built... On the rubble of an older church, which is pretty much true in all of Israel, everything is built on the rubble of past lives there, but it's built on an older church, which in turn was built on top of an older church, which in turn was built on top of a house. So you can't really tell from the pictures, but the picture on the right I took is all covered in glass, um, but you're looking down, and at the very bottom of these layers is the, is the, um, the foundation of a home, not a church. Why does that matter? Because that home was a home that was built around the second century. hundred years or so after Jesus lived, right? Or the first century, I guess it would have been. And, and yet, because of the way the Jewish traditions were and the way, the, the way people carried stories over and over, that first church that was built on top of that home, would prob- they probably would have known which home it was at that point that he actually turned the water into wine. Does that, does that sort of make sense? So unlike many of the other places where they built these churches years and years later, it's sort of like, do they really know exactly where Golgotha is? No, they don't. Do they really know exactly where, um, I'm, just, I'm trying to think, of, like even where he fed the 5,000? No, they don't. They have an idea of the general geography. Here was the one place that we went where I, where I could look down and go, Without it, well, there was one other place I won't go into. It'll, it'll come up later in the series. But there's where you can look and you can go. Jesus was there, like the, you can't see it, but in the bottom of that hole on the right, that's the home that Jesus turned water into wine. 
And I just found that really um, actually fascinating. So let's go on with the story. That he, that pick, pick it up in verse 3. It says, when the wine ran out, so they're at this wedding feast, and when the wine, which, which by the way, they would take a week to have a wedding. It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, it's interesting. I kind of wonder, what was Mary thinking? Like, why, why did she come up to her oldest son and say, and say hey, there's, they've run out of wine? Unless she thought in some way he had the ability to do something about it. Now, in verse 11, it says that this was the first miracle that Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. So we don't, there's no reason to believe that he performed other miracles as a child. There are some extra-biblical writings that talk about Jesus performing miracles as a child, but nothing in the Bible tells us that. Nothing tells us that he is exceptional until he kind of bursts on the scene as, um, in his 30s. Except that this scene tells me that Mary was expecting something. What was it? I don't really know. It's kind of fun to think about. But I wonder if she just realized, you know what, when my son is around, things seem to happen. Things seem to get done around here. And so he, she goes up and she says, hey, they've run out of wine. Here's what's interesting. That phrase, woman, it sounds derogatory in our culture. It doesn't it? Like, woman? You know, that's how I talk to my wife sometimes, actually. But um, she doesn't listen, though. I don't know why. Um, anyway, I say it the way he said it. That word woman there is actually the same reference he makes at the end of John's gospel in John 19 when, he, when he's on the cross and he looks down at his, his, and Mary and John the apostle that wrote this gospel are there at his feet. They're the last couple people that are left and he looks down at his mom and he says, woman, behold your son. He's, he's basically saying, take care of my mom, John. And it shows his heart. In his humanity, it shows his heart for Mary. That, that phrase really ought to be translated not woman, but dear woman, is what it means in the Greek. He's saying, dear woman. Now he says, what does this have to do with us? That is an idiom, that is a saying of the day, that would be something like, say what? It's the same phrase that multiple times Jesus walks up on a, on a demonic, on someone who's possessed. And the demon says to them, the same thing. He says, what do you have to do with me, son of man? We know who you are. It's the same phrase that the demons use to, to present to Jesus. It's an idiom of the day, and they're just saying, what, say what? What do you have to do with me? It ought to be translated, what business is your business to my business? So he's saying, what business is this of mine? I, I, I don't have anything to do here. I, I, there's no part of me that should be involved in this business. Kids, don't talk to your mom that way. Don't say, don't go up to mom next time she tells you to do something and say, what business is your business with my business? Because you're not Jesus, and her business is to be in your business, right? But, but, but in, in the case of Jesus, he is trying to show Mary something. He is turning a corner here, and in their culture, there's multiple times he does this to his mom, but in their culture, when the oldest boy addresses his mom, that's a big deal. And, and he is basically saying, Mom, I'm not about your business anymore. I'm about my father's business. And that's why he says, the hour has not yet come. What hour? 
Well, it's the hour, it's what we call like the passion hour. It's the hour, he's saying the hour of his death, the hour of the payment for our sin on the cross has not yet come. He's saying, he's basically saying to her, my time, God, God, my father has me on a timetable. And the clock starts ticking right about now. And from this point on, Jesus is going to be very methodical and very intentional about everywhere he goes, everybody he talks to, everything he says, all the miracles he performs. And he's saying, because my father's business is to walk me to a cross, and that is on his timetable, not yours, mom. But at the same time, what's cool about this scene is God is actually using Mary to paint the picture of Jesus launching into who he is. Because his miracles are, there's a point to his miracles. And we'll get there in just a minute. And I can't see anything. So, last part I want to point out about this part of the passage. Mary shows, her, she acknowledges his authority. Because look at how, it, look at how she ends the statement. So she, she comes to him saying, son, do something about this wine problem. She leaves him saying, do whatever he tells you to do. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. I got to thinking, what about me? How often do I come to Jesus telling him to do something? And how often should I be listening and going, whatever he tells me to do, just do it. Right? We've been talking about this a little bit, I think, in, in, at different times. I'm not sure if it was here or in some of our leadership meetings or where, but we're talking about discovering the will of God. And Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, you want to know God's will for your life? Do the next right thing. That's ultimately what Mary is saying. To just do what he tells you to do, because whatever he tells you to do is going to be the next right thing. So let's pick it up in verse 6. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. So these were big, people. These were not like little pots. The, the picture doesn't really do them justice. They're, they're not the actual pots anyway, but um, they were in that big church that they had set up on top of the place where they think, where, well, on top of this place where he turned the water into wine. But it says in, in verse 7, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. Here's what's interesting. Why aren't they full? We don't know if they're partially full or if they're or or not. He just says, go fill them up. The water of purification, if they were following what they should have been doing, which in God's law at that time, prior to the cross, was those they should have been washing before and after the meals. That means that there should have been water in those pots, because what were they going to wash with if the pots were empty? So he's, so it's a great picture, as I was thinking about it, I'm thinking to myself, it is a picture of sort of the, and I don't want to over-spiritualize it, but it's this picture of the emptiness in, like, my heart prior to Christ 24 years ago. Like, is, am I, am, am I, because we're looking at how he's taking the old and making it new, these pots were not only just water, but they weren't even water yet. They were empty pots. And I wonder to me, like, how often... Um, do I find myself empty? You know, even now, not full of the joy of the Lord that I talked about at the beginning. So they filled him up to the brim, and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him, and when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and, did not know where, and they did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom. So he goes over to the, to the bridegroom is the, is the groom, 
And he said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Interesting. One of the first, one of the, his first sign, this is the first sign Jesus makes. Isn't it interesting how he performs the sign? Was there any physical activity on his part? Does he do anything? He tells other people to go do it. It's interesting. The servants are the ones doing the work. Jesus is just the one who has the power to make it happen. In our leadership uh, class on Tuesday mornings, we're reading a couple of chapters out of Wearsby book on, Wearsby's book on being a servant of God. And he talks about how we too often think to ourselves that we are to be manufacturers of God's grace and power. And God did not call us to be manufacturers. He only called us to be distributors. The, all the servants are doing is distributing what Jesus did. Jesus was the one who had the power to make the old turn into something new. It's also just a great picture of just the richness and sweetness of what he does in our lives. He takes empty jars, has them filled up, and then turns them into sweet wine. Right? And it's a great picture of what he's doing in our lives. We, I was empty prior to Christ. He fills me up. And, and lets me taste the sweetness of his grace. And it's such a great picture there. But let's pick it up in verse 11. It says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word signs there is the word semion in Greek. And it means a testing miracle. It means a mir- it's not just a miracle for the sake of the miracle, but it's a miracle in order to point something out. So when he says this is the beginning of the signs, this is the beginning of what Jesus was doing to point to something. What is he pointing to? He's pointing to who he is. Right? And, and there's, we'll talk more about that as we go through more, um, more of the series a little bit later. But just remember that it, his, when, when Jesus acts, and miracles are still happening. And we're going to get to that at the end too. But, but, but when Jesus acts and the miraculous happens, it is for the same reason that he turned the water into wine. It's to point to him. It's not for us. It's to point to him. And that's ultimately what happens here. In fact, in the passage that we started with a month ago in John 20, it says this, Therefore many other signs, that's the same word, samion, or attesting miracles, Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So John is saying, I didn't even write all the miracles Jesus did, which is part of why we're going through the other gospels in our daily readings as well. And then it says, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing, you would have life in his name. It's the same, basically what he's saying is these signs, these attesting miracles are to point to me. And and then you would believe. So let's pick it up in verse 12. It says, after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Guys, that gives, he gets one, that gets one line in scripture. That's 24 miles. Right, we walked from Cana. It took us two days. So he, Jesus, his mom, and his brothers are walking from Cana all the way to Capernaum, which is on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. It took us two days, and I was exhausted, and my feet were blistered by the time we got there. And, and that gets one line in scripture. Oh, by the way, they just walked to, to Capernaum. 
right? Following Jesus has always been hard. Following Jesus has always been taxing. Right? It's part of the deal. But, but it's also his power that makes it possible for us to follow him. Look at your be in community section. It's on the back of your connecting points, your outline. It's about the importance of us being together and how that relates to what we're looking at. It says, Christ was sent on mission. His life was a perfect picture of what sent looks like. It looks like making the most of the time for the days are evil. Like Jesus, we all have a certain amount of work God has planned for us to accomplish. Are the people in your life encouraging you to make the most of the time? When your hour has come, will you be able to say, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you have given me to do? That is all that will matter to you in the end. Guys, the bottom line is none of us are going to get to the end of our days and go, I wish I had more stuff. Right? One of the things that was so amazing, and it was actually about 600 people that were at Brent's memorial on Thursday. It was stand, when I got up to share, which I was after an hour into the service, I got up to share and I was sitting in the front so I hadn't seen. I turned around and I look and they had added all of these chairs on the side and there was standing room only across the back and it was and, and part of the testimony that people had heard up prior to me getting up there to share the gospel was this was a man who didn't live for stuff. In fact, he was and Connie thank you for being here. And Blake and Phyllis too. He lived for them. And he lived for those 600 people. And he wore holy socks. And I don't mean holy H-O-L-Y. I mean holy like... What would that be? H-O-L-Y. But, I mean, but he was, he was cheap. I would call him frugal. Because that's how I am. But the point is... We're not going to get to the end of our days and go, man, I wish I would have collected more stuff. We're going to get to the end of our days or not and go, did I make a difference for the kingdom? D.L. Moody, who was an evangelist in the early 1900s, said, The world has yet to see a God, a, a, what God can do through one man wholly committed to him. The world has yet to see what God can do through one man wholly committed to him. I got a glimpse of what that looks like in Brent's life on Thursday. So he shows God strong so that he can make old into new. He also does it so he can clean the house to make room for the new. And that brings us to our next point. So pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 2. It says, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now that's 100 miles. We didn't walk that, praise the Lord. And he, so he, he's going to walk down to Jerusalem. It's 100 miles from where he was in Capernaum. And it says, and he found in the temple that those who were selling oxen and, sheeps and, and sheep and doves for the sacrifices in the temple, and the money changers seated at their tables, and he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple. Now guys, get this. He made a scourge of cords. That stood out to me for a few reasons, but one of them, this was not an act of rage. Like he didn't walk in, see what was going on in his father's house, and just get really angry and start throwing things around. He sat there for a while and deliberately watched them. I don't know how long it took for him to braid that thing together that he ended up using to drive them out of the temple, but it, but it was a calculated, righteous act of anger. Right? Because he was appalled at what he was seeing. So what was he seeing? 
It says that he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The psalmist writes it this way. In Psalm 69, he says, passion or zeal, it's the same word, for your house has consumed me and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Guys, I want you to, I'm going to take the time. I want you to keep your finger here in John chapter 2 and turn to Isaiah. Isaiah is towards the middle of your Bible, so it's back to the left of where we are. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Keep your finger in John, because we're coming right back there, but turn to Isaiah chapter 9. It's a passage about, it, it starts out in chapter 9, it starts out, and a light will shine, those who live in the darkness will see a great light. It's sort of, it's a passage we read a lot around Christmas time, and I'm sure we will again when we get to that Advent season of Christmas and celebrate that season together um, from Thanksgiving through New Year's, but, um, but I want to pick it up, I'm just going to pick it up in verse 6, it says, For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or, his, or of peace on the throne of David and his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And then look at how Isaiah finishes it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That word zeal there should be translated, or could be translated, the jealous, passionate commitment of God. It's the same word that they're using in the Psalms that they're using here in John. He's saying that, that the zealous, passionate, jealous commitment of Jesus for his father's house is what drove him. So what caused him to get so angry? You know what caused him to get so angry? God's people... We're not glorifying God. That's what drove Jesus nuts. More than anything else, not just in this scene, but throughout the Gospels, what we see in Jesus' life is the thing that drove him crazy was people who professed faith in God but were not living for his glory. And he sees this in his father's house and he's like, of all of the places for this to be happening, this place is supposed to be Jeremiah 7.11 says, It's supposed to be a house of prayer. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. Isaiah says, For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Guys, we don't often see this side of the Savior. We don't often see, we, we, we want to we soften Jesus up and make him out to be this very almost a feminine, milk-toast leader. And, and, and not only did he, was he joyful and, and went to wedding feasts and things like that, but he also had righteous anger many times. And it was always because his father was not being glorified. And guys, we're going to see this Savior again. In Revelation, I won't have you turn there, but in Revelation 19, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make this little scene of driving the people out of his fathers out of the temple and overturning them. He's going to make that scene look like nothing. It's going to look like a timeout compared to the spanking he's going to give the world when he comes back. 
When he comes back, his, his hair is white, his eyes are a blaze of fire, his tongue is a sword, and mountains are melting like wax before the Lord. Why? Because he is going to be a little frustrated that, the, that people who are claiming his name are not giving his Father glory. And he's going to come and set it all right. Guys, it's really easy for us, though, to look at like, yeah, but, but in my heart, you know, I'm not... You know, these, these, the Pharisees, the religious leaders that were doing all this bad stuff in the temple, and we can sort of judge them and go, yeah, that was shame on them for doing that. But, but I need to look at my own heart and go, what parts of my own heart am I doing business as usual in? When he says, stop making my father's house a place of business. He's saying, Don't, right, you can go right outside the temple walls and conduct this business. Why are you bringing it in here? Well, I have to ask myself that question. Why am I bringing all that worldly business here? Because I struggle. Because I'm, a, because I'm a sinner saved by grace. And I still struggle. Even though sin's victory is gone, its presence still remains in my life. And it does in yours too. But we need to be constantly asking ourselves, what do we need to do to stop conducting business as usual? Because he cares about how we behave. Peter puts it this way. In 1 Peter 4, he says, For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with, the household, with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? Guys, are we zealous? Are we passionate? Are we jealous for the things of God? I hope so. I mean, I, that's, my, that's been my prayer even this week for me and for us as a church, that we would be passionately jealous for the things of God. Look at your engagement zone. It's the engage in the call. It's this idea of, okay, so now what, what are we supposed to go do? It says, it is always a good time to do a little house cleaning. Clutter piles up, dust creeps in, and sometimes we walk through the mud and bring it right inside. Being a disciple of Christ means our sin has been dealt with once for all time. But the call to confess and repent is a present active call as well. And being honest about our sin struggles to God and to others makes our testimony to others stronger still. Do you get that, guys? Being honest to God and confessing our sin to Him and to others, not only is it freeing and, and a command of Scripture, right? 1 John 1, 9, but it is a part of our testimony. If God has used Cornerstone in any particular way, like I would say, this is it. This is to be a place where people feel free to go, you know what, I'm struggling. I'm not perfect. And not, have, not feel like we, it's okay to just stay there. We can't just stay there and wallow. And that's okay, grace covers that. To be encouraged to move out of that place, but not be afraid to share that place. Guys, here's a great example. Last Sunday, from, from this mouth, right? I had multiple people after church, during the week, email me, text me, whatever, and say, you know, you talked for 40 minutes. The most powerful thing you said the whole day was when you stood up here at the end of the service and apologized for being a bonehead. I'll say that nicely. For what I said during the message. They're like, that spoke more than anything. Why? Because, well, finish, finish the engage in the call section. One of the best ways to witness to others as we engage in the call to make disciples is to admit our need for our Savior. Guys, I stood up here and basically said, I ain't perfect. 
And, I, and, and we have a culture of that. Praise God. Because there is huge power for the gospel there. So remember to ask questions when you're, when you're engaging with people. Admire effort for sure, but admit need. Vulnerability and openness are powerful tools to lead people to their need for the cross of Christ. So Jesus shows God strong and that he turned the old into new. He also cleaned house. But our question today is, did you know that in Christ, you are a walking sign? So what does that have to do with us? And that was one of my challenges, even as we were going through this. The question becomes, how are we showing God strong? How are we showing God strong? Well, we are showing God strong when we testify to the resurrection and our power in our lives. And that's our last point. So go back to, I don't know where I left you, but go back to John 2 and verse 18. It says, the Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority to do these things? It's the same word, what semion, what, what attesting miracle. What are you going to show us to prove you are who you are? Keep your finger in John, turn to the right of where we are, and go to 1 Corinthians. So you're going to go past Acts, you're going to go past the big book of Acts, past the big book of Romans, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here's how Paul explains this dynamic that we, that we constantly demand some sign from the Lord. We were talking about this in our men's group. We constantly, like we're laying a fleece before the Lord all the time going, show me proof, God. Show me proof. Here's what, here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, cha- verse, um, chapter 1, verse 22. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign. We just saw it. And Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling. He's talking to us. Guys, he's saying, Paul's saying, listen up, church. Consider you. Consider yourself. That, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things, that's us, of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world to despise God, the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Guys, the bottom line is, your, if you're his, your life is living proof of the power of the resurrection. Your life is living proof that God is a strong God. We don't need to see miracles any, anymore, but we see miracles all the time. Robert in the back is a, is a walking miracle that we got to witness as he was saved and was baptized here a few weeks ago. That's the biggest sign there is. You want to know what the biggest sign is? It's the resurrection. How do I know that? Well, keep your finger in 1 Corinthians because we're coming back. Go back to where I told you to keep your finger in John and look at John 2, 19 and 20. It says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. First of all, it's, it's, it's so, this was so me prior to Christ. 
as a, as a God-denying, Christian-mocking atheist, when people would try to engage me with the gospel, I would try to argue details. So just like most skeptics, they're like, it took 46 years. Like, what difference does that make? Right? Why be that specific? Because they want to get lost in an argument about details. When you're engaging with the unsafe people, don't, just don't waste time with that. Point them back to Christ. So Jesus, and then obviously John has sort of given us this little commentary. He's like, it, he was talking about the resurrection. And that is the great sign. So when they say, what sign are you going to give that you are the Christ? He's like, watch me. You're going to kill me. You're going to put me in the ground. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. Go back to 1 Corinthians. This time to the end of the, end of the book, the end of the letter, chapter 15. And we're going to kind of march our way into our time of communion with looking at, at what Paul tells us in this last part of this letter that he writes. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 13, proving the, proving the importance of the resurrection, Paul says this, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith also in vain. Moreover, we who are found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ. He's saying, we told everybody in the name of the Lord that Christ was raised. So if he really wasn't, then we're liars and you shouldn't listen to anything else we have to say. He said, whom he did not, if he did not raise, in fact, if the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Guys, do you get what he's saying there? He's saying there that the resurrection, we we point to the cross and we should because the cross is where the payment for our sin was made. But the resurrection is proof that the payment was sufficient. If, If Jesus had not been raised, this is what Paul's saying, if Jesus had not been raised, we are still in our sins because that means he, that means that God went, he put all of the sins of the world on his son, crucified him on the cross. The only way Jesus can be in the presence of God now is if he had been sufficient in the payment for all sin, once for all, past, present, and future. Because that's what was placed on him. He couldn't be in God's presence had that not, payment not been sufficient. That's ultimately what Paul is saying here. Pick it up in verse 20. He says, now, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also comes the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits after those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he stands over the kingdom of God and the Father, when he has, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he is put to death all of his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that he will abolish is death. Guys, the greatest miracle that ever happens is the resurrection of a, of a dead soul to life. We, when we see that, we are living, we are witnessing living proof. Guys, if you open up the Word of God and you can understand it in some way, it speaks to your heart. That is living proof that a miracle happened. Because I remember 24 years ago reading this dead word and going, this makes no sense to me. Because I should never take for granted the ability I have now to open up these pages and have the Spirit of God take the Word of God and apply it to this heart. That is a, that is a miracle of God. 
Because it's, it's, it's proof that I have come to life. And if you can do that, it is proof that you've come to life. And if you can't do that, then you need to come to Christ. So if you look at your, the back of your connecting points, there's the section reacting to his will. And it says, what is the Spirit teaching you through these teachings, speaking to you? And what is Jesus asking you to do? Take a minute right now and ask yourself, what am I doing with the risen Christ? What am I doing with Jesus? How is the resurrection real to me? Jesus said it to us this way last week. What do you seek? What do you seek? At the very end of chapter 15, I'm just going to read a few verses here. And it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Go back to John, and we're going to finish it up with these last couple of verses and go into communion with this. In John 2, verse 22, it says, So when he was raised from the dead, so John, so John is, is flash-forwarding, sort of giving us a glimpse of what happened after the resurrection. So this is post-resurrection. It says, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, that we just read, that, the res- that he was going to raise to life after three days, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Okay, so do you get what he's saying there? He's saying after the resurrection, after the penalty has been paid, the resurrection has happened, the Holy Spirit has come, the disciples then had the ability to understand the words Jesus was speaking. He's saying that ultimately, after the ascension and the sending of the Spirit, our eyes are open to the Word of God. Because how did they believe? By the Scripture and the Word. Well, what does Paul tell us in Romans? Faith, belief, faith, belief, comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Right? Ultimately, it's such, it, was so, it was so neat that Dan opened up with that part of, in Isaiah 55. I didn't ask him to do that. And talking about it is the Word of God that breathes life into people. It is the Word of God that, that has resurrection power. Our job is to speak it. Just, just like the servants that brought the jugs, the, the big stone jars, our job is to just be obedient to what he's telling us to do. He's the one that will turn the water into wine. He's the one that will bring the dead to life. He's the one that will take a soul that is stone cold dead and make it alive in Christ. By the power of his word, when his spirit infects a body. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for that truth. I thank you for the truth that Jesus was not just a man. That Jesus was not just some man that had some special power He was the perfect God-man, and he proved it over and over and over again. Lord, I thank you that Jesus himself said, so that you would know that the Son of Man has the ability to forgive sin. And then he healed someone. Why? Because that miracle was living proof of the power of his resurrection. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ for those in this room right now that do not know you. 
that, that where the word does not come to life for them, where they don't hear from you. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would today open their eyes, that you would today unplug their ears, that you would today turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh, that it would beat hot-heartedly for you. And I pray that for all of us, Lord. I pray that our hearts would beat hot-heartedly for you. I pray that you would not let us walk out of here just doing business as usual, that you would clean house, that you would fill us to overflowing, that you would make us walking billboards for the gospel of Jesus Christ as we show you the strong God you are to a world that needs to see you. In Jesus' name, amen.